Matt Taibbi, the author of Hate, Inc., How the Media Became What It Is. Uh, This is a terrific book, especially for somebody in the media, but I think you'll enjoy it as well. And recruiting stories. We got a bunch of basketball ones from some huge names and life advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older. 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler or visit rg help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want, they taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. This is somebody who I've been a huge fan of for a long time. I'm kind of surprised that I didn't hook up with him earlier. But Matt Taibbi, uh, one of the great writers, I think, of our time with Rolling Stone. You probably saw his work there. Now, Substack, you can get all the work. I, I loved Gratopia when it first came out. And then Hate, Inc. is the book that I kind of want to talk about. We'll kind of we'll just kick it around. And Useful Idiots is also his podcast. So, Matt, what's up, man? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Big fan myself. Okay, so... One of my favorite uh, things about you is I think you're one of the great observers of our time. And I, I always love that line from Zero Effect, where the movie where in, in I think you even reference this, but I I mean, did, it's just, yeah. yeah, I love that <laughs> reference because I love that movie. But another thing from it is like the detective is like, I'm just a great observer, you know, and, and right. it's. And it is, it is an, uh, I think it's an underrated skill because everybody could sit there and say, well, I observe things. And that's, that's what I've just always liked about you is that. You just will see the world and you will see it in a way. And then you're like, okay, let me try to explain to everybody what I'm seeing and why this is happening. So what were the observations to, that really led to a book uh, that's hating why today's media makes us despise one another? Yeah, first, just to, fl- to flesh out the whole zero effect thing, because uh, I think it's an important point that the scene is from it's... Um, Who's the actor? Bill Pullman, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a scene where he's sort of like the, this Holmesian detective. And uh, the line is, if you're looking for a specific thing, your chances of finding it are very small because out of all the things in the world, there's only one of those. Uh, but if you go into a situation looking for anything, um, you're very likely to find it because <laughs> there's, there's this limited, unlimited amount of things in the world. And, and so that's kind of my philosophy of journalism, which is, you know, I, I think in the current age, especially, uh, one of the things that happens is we, we get sent into stories and we have a predetermined thesis when we go in. Uh, you know, editors, editors know what they want out of a topic and they'll send a reporter into some place and they kind of want them to get that. So reporters end up going in and trying to nudge sources and interviews uh, in a certain direction because they want the right quotes. Whereas, you know, my philosophy is I think you should go in with a blank slate, you know, see what develops 
and then kind of write that up, uh, you know, afterwards, because whatever you found is what you found, you know, and that, and that's, that's, I think, how journalists traditionally operated. We do it a different way now. And this is, this is kind of what the book is about. The book is about how uh, the media business has kind of radically changed in the last 30 years. Uh, we now have this very kind of ritualized, uh, rigid, uh, politicized format where, you know, almost every story is commoditized for specific political audiences. So if you're covering, let's say, immigration and you work for The Washington Post or The New York Times, you're going to your, your take is basically pre-written because you, you know what your audience wants to hear. Same thing if you work for Fox, you're going to have a completely different take. Your take is going to be focusing on crimes committed by immigrants coming into the country or, uh, you know, sort of other problems like that. Right. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get at with hate Inc, which is that we've divided the business into essentially halves where we're not really reporting. We're just manufacturing a product, uh, that is designed to make audiences feel better about themselves by giving them what they want to hear. Yeah. The, the immigrant part that that I thought is is really interesting because I went back and read Losers, Michael Lewis's book mm-hmm. about the 96 campaign. And you would hear Pat Buchanan basically saying word for word stuff Trump would be saying in his bid for mm-hmm. re-election. And it feels like it's so different and it's so heightened in ways it is. But I think anytime I'll read about anything that's happened with coverage, I mean, it happens in sports all the time. Like when I'd read Babe Ruth's biography and I would hear a different columnist crushing him for certain things, I'm like, this is straight from first take. Like, this is unbelievable that we're 100 years removed from this stuff and it's almost the same way that's covered. So why do you think, though, in observing all this, like, and I know you've gone back and and looked at, um, you know, the way coverage has evolved. Like, why do you think it feels so different now, even though a lot of the stuff tonally was the same subject matter wise as well? So it, it has a ton to do with kind of the commercial strategy of the business and, and structurally how how we make money in media now is, has changed. If you go back to uh, the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and again, I'm, I'm the son of a reporter, so I grew up uh, watching this, the strategy of a, a network like NBC, CBS, ABC, they wanted to go for the whole audience. They were trying to get everybody. So they wanted both Republicans and Democrats to watch their programming uh, because they wanted to sell the maximum number of ads to, uh, you know, to people. So they, they tended to have a very broad, uh, non-confrontational, non-denominational approach to covering the news. And when the internet came along, and especially after the development of the 24-hour news cycle, uh, it just became impossible. Uh, you know, I think stations like Fox were the first to realize um, with so much content out there, the way that you make money in modern media is you identify a demographic and you try to dominate it. So rather than just broadly going after everybody, let's give, let's identify, let's say a, a conservative suburban uh, district or a demographic and let's give them the hard stuff that they really like. Uh, and we know that they're going to come back to that because we're, give, we're giving them content that is stronger in their direction than the news on ABC, NBC, CBS, whatever it is. Now everybody does that. Basically, every 
Every news organization does some version of that. The New York Times knows exactly who its audience is and they feed them news that they know that they like. Uh, you know, Salon.com, you know, even Rolling Stone, where I work for, like the, the, the strategies are different. We're, 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 we're doing what's called sort of audience uh, optimization, right? We're, we're picking an audience and, and we're going backwards. We're, we're, we're starting with the audience and then developing the content to fit the audience. And that, that's what's different. And, the, you know, again, for 50 years or so, the strategy was, was completely opposite. I don't know what this says about me, uh, so I'll just go ahead and share it. But, you know, when I I don't watch really much news at all. Um, no, that's I, great I, for you. Yeah. <laughs> I watch. I figure. I mean, I know this sounds shitty, but like, here's a perfect example. A bunch of friends were emailing about Biden handing a do not hack list to, Pu uh, to Putin and to Russia and being like, hey, don't hack these. And then my conservative friends were like, hey, what an idiot. Like, why would you tell him to not target these? Now they're going to target those. And then my more liberal friends were like, you're making too big of a deal out of this. And then, of course, it turned into, yeah, but if Trump had done this, you guys would have said he was an idiot and on and on and on. And I just kind of hang and go, whatever. And I just felt like whatever happened, whatever today's news moment was, you're going to forget about it in five days. Exactly. It, it's probably not going to impact any day for the rest of your life unless, you know, there is a massive, massive hack. And I guess the back and forth. I find it so unimpressive. It, it's almost like a, a conservative friend tweeting out a picture of Bill Clinton and Jeffrey Epstein and thinking he won the argument or a Trump yeah. supporter tweeting out a picture. Or I, I would say, um, yeah, yeah. On the other side, like somebody else who hates Trump saying, hey, here's Trump and Harvey Weinstein and feeling like, OK, so now what? You, you tweeted out the pictures. Now what? And right. I find a lot of it very useless. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely useless. It's it's entertainment. You know, and and I think people think that they're resolving something or that they're going to win win the argument, but it, <laughs> the argument is the point. I mean, you brought up first take before the whole concept of those sports shows, and and I and I there's a chapter in the book about how the news is ripped off a lot from sports because they've figured out that it's it's a format that works. You, you know, arguing is is fun for sports fans. You know, like I. We, the Yankees fans want to argue one thing, you, you know, Red Sox fans want to argue another thing. People who like LeBron, uh, you know, more than Michael Jordan, you know, they want to have that debate. It's just entertainment, right? We do a different version of it uh, with politics, but it's essentially the same idea. We, you know, the people on NBC are arguing one thing and that's Max Kellerman and then over on Fox, they're arguing back and it, the argument never ends. The, 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 the show would be impossible if they ever came to an accommodation about anything. And that's, that's why, you know, sort of political media has evolved in the direction it has because the, the money-making element of this whole thing is the constantly emotionally charged argument that underlies the whole, all of it. And that's, no one will admit that, but that's, that's what makes the money in, in political media. And that's why we, we have it. And I saw firsthand once Trump was in the lead up the year prior and then once he was in office and we would look at our daytime ratings on ESPN and we were all whacked by like 30 something percent, if not more mm -hmm. like the daytime chunk of it. Yeah, everybody's like going, well, wait a minute. I mean, selfishly, if you were really selfish, everybody in sports would have wanted Trump out because we wanted our daytime show ratings back. <laughs> OK, <laughs> right. uh, I was gone from the daytime part of it by the by the time he was still in office. But. Um, I mean, I, there was like a half overlap and then I left ESPN, the daytime part of it, the end of 17. 
Um, but we would see those and go, okay, this is like the easiest correlation ever. We're not trying to figure out, hey, are you doing the topics wrong? Like, is, do we have the wrong host? We're like, no, everybody's over there because they can't get enough of the coverage, love him or hate him. How important was that in the business planning of these outlets, seeing it and then doubling down and realizing, okay, this is a cash cow right now? Oh, absolutely. That was central. Like, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot. If you look at the the, the polls, there's this amazing kind of set of numbers. One shows that the public believes the news media far less than they ever have before. Like the, the, it's like a it's like a constant downward graph. Every year it gets worse. On the other hand, they consume news media more than they ever have before. Right. So they're watching us more. They believe us less. So what does that tell you? That tells you that news media is cutting in to the market share of entertainment media. I mean, it's it's a simple one-to-one kind of zero-sum thing where we started to, to, especially in the Trump years, Trump came along and he was an entertainment phenomenon. Let's, let's, you know, there's no bones about it. He's a reality star. He's a former pro wrestling guy. Like he, he is extremely adept at generating audience. He turned the presidential campaign, which is essentially a reality show, we cover it that way, but he turned it from a bad one into a, a really interesting one. And we got tons and tons of audience that we never had before. Like, you know, what you're describing in sports media, the opposite happened in news media. We, in, you know, the, the fall of 2015 and early 2016, I, you know, I was covering Trump. I was on the campaign trail and we were all talking about it. Like, you know, our, our clicks were up, everybody, the TV ratings were up, everybody was doing a booming business. And it didn't matter whether you were anti-Trump, pro-Trump, you know, as long as you had them on air, it was a cash cow. So absolutely, this was conscious. You know, we we knew we were taking audience away from sports and entertainment and soap operas and everything else because we were the best soap opera in town. It will be remembered historically as one of the worst calls by the media in, oh, in general, yeah. <laughs> um, because I just remember, you know, everything I saw. And I think it has sometimes to do with that, like elitism in the in the Northeast. And then, you know, people can joke about the coastal elite phrase. You know, I'm from the Northeast. I'm from Massachusetts like you are, oh. um, you know, and you're like, OK, this is this is it. Like, this isn't going to last with Trump. This isn't going to not to like keep bringing this stuff over and over again. But it was one of the all time worst calls by the media that there's no way he could ever win. And it proved this disconnect, which I think you jump into really well in the book of like the people that are on the coverage have maybe never been more disconnected from the people they think they know. And then like the comical thing of like, all right, well, let's have New York Times columnist go to upstate New York to just hang out and be regular for a week. <laughs> like, like this stuff is it's. It's comical that it'd be like, all right, you know what we need? We got the Trump thing wrong. So let's go have some hot dogs in upstate New York and we're going to get to the root of this. Yeah, it's it's like the Jane Goodale, let's let's go live among the apes kind of a thing, right? Like um, it, 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 the, the call that you're, you're mentioning, it's way worse than we, we remember because not only was the media unanimous that he would never win the general election, they were absolutely unanimous that he would never win the nomination. And and this was at a time when he was crushing the polls. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, having a slight advantage over over Jeb Bush. He, he was destroying everybody. And the 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 predictions in at uh, at sites that were supposedly professional about this, like 538.com, you know, Nate Silver's site, they were saying things like, 
you know, Donald Trump will play in the NBA before he's the the, the Republican nominee. Uh, and this was this was unanimous. There, there there was almost nobody who who thought otherwise. Now, I have a confession to make. I was I was one of the first people to take Trump seriously as a as a candidate. I wrote an article pretty early in the process saying, um, you know, essentially that there was a very viable path forward to him to winning the whole thing because I was. I was traveling around and I was seeing the crowds. It was just unbelievable and talking to people. But then I got sat down by a pollster um, at the Republican convention who, you know, sort of read me the riot act and said, it's not happening. And sort of proved to me that the numbers just didn't add up, that there weren't enough non-college educated white people to elect Trump. And from that point forward, I made a mistake. I did. I made the same mistake that all journalists made, um, saying that it was impossible. But you know that that's a lesson for journalists is that you have to trust your your eyes sometimes, and not the, not the so-called experts. Because what I was seeing in the campaign was that Trump was packing massive stadiums, like every you know all over the country. There were, there was standing room only. People were left outside. I mean, I can tell you stories about things that I saw. And Hillary Clinton was having empty seats at the, at, 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 in the back of small halls, you know, and that should have been a big tell. And we ignored it. We just what, if, what if somebody says, hey, well, she won the popular vote, though. You don't know what you're talking about. Because I mean, I'm imagining five minutes into this, somebody's already mad that we're bringing up, you know, this unpredictable thing. And it's not even political. I just am fascinated. And I think we always should be historically with the coverage of this. But go ahead. No, she did win the popular vote. And and you know, I, I don't dispute that she won it by a fairly significant margin. But what we saw on the campaign trail should have told us that this was going to be at least a close race. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that's it. I think you know, that's the point. Right. And 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 that there was some drama, you know, that, that you know, I, I don't think even Trump expected to win. Like if you look at his face on election night, you could tell he was kind of stunned by the whole thing. Um, but there was no question that that we were getting data um, throughout the campaign that was telling us like sort of uh, directly that this was going to be kind of kind of a close thing. And I, rem I remember even having conversations with journalists who were saying things like, you know, I'm not sure I want to do the story about this poll because I'll be accused of helping Trump by saying that the race is close. Like there, there was this perception that if if we said it was anything but a blowout that it was going to, going to be um heightening his chances and that that's where i started that was part of the impetus for this book is i was i was seeing this thing that was happening with journalists where they started to put their thumbs on the scale and saying you know we got to try to affect the outcome whereas i i, I see our jobs as being like we'll just tell you what's happening you figure it out you know and um that's that stopped during the trump years i think that's a perfect segue then, because, you know, now he's in office and I've seen and read and probably felt at times, hey, we've never been more divided. But then sometimes I'll wonder, is it that or we've just never had more access to our division, which I think is probably part of it as well. But he's in office and now it's you've got to figure out which way you're going with it. And again, another sort of self-critical thing here is like when I watched I wish I should say watch loosely when I come across a clip of a Sean Hannity, like my expectation was zero before the clip mm -hmm. even started. All right. Like I already know, like I don't care. And Rachel Maddow, who you also have on the cover, maybe at some point I just sort of felt like I have a higher expectation for your coverage. And she 
in her own way, was just as guilty of being as biased as Hannity was, which is why I love the book, because you just kind of lay it all out there. I don't know why I would have higher expectations for her than Hannity, but I did. So therefore, when she screws shit up, it's almost like I was more disappointed where there was never any expectation with Hannity whatsoever. So again, I don't know what that says about me, but I'm just throwing it out there to you. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, and I, I knew Rachel going back to her Air America days. Um, I watched her whole career develop. You know, we were friendly at one point. Um, and Does she hate you now, by the way, because she's on the cover <laughs> of this book? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's probably not good. Uh, but, you know, it's, it, yeah, it is what it is. But yeah, I, I had higher expectations for her too. And I think up until, up until 2016, I would have said that she she did pretty smart television. I mean, for, for the most part, and she's she's extremely good on air. You know, as as a broadcast broadcaster, she really knows what she's doing. She's very smart. Um, but after 2016, MSNBC's sort of mandate became almost iron ironclad predictable. Like the the in the same way that you talk about with Hannity. You don't have to watch the show because you know what he's going to say, basically. Like his take on everything is kind of pre-written. And that's what happened on MSNBC. And, and, and the, first, the first place where you saw this happening was right after the election, um, when there should have been this really intense, soul-searching post-mortem. Like what happened to the Dem Democratic Party? How could we possibly lose an election to, you know, this, you know, game show host who is like a, you know, an Andy Kaufman act, basically, right? Like, how, how did we lose to this guy? And, and there should have been some reflection about that, because the answer is extremely complicated. You know, it, it like, race was clearly part of it. There's no question about it. Like, if you went into Trump crowds, you hear stuff that people say, is no, no question that there's nativism, racism, all that stuff. But there was also there were also lots of other factors that were really pertinent. Like I talked to a lot of union people in Trump crowds who said, you know, I feel betrayed by the Democratic Party because of NAFTA and other things. Um, I heard a lot of people who, who, would, who said, uh, you know, I, I distrust politicians of all stripes because of after what happened in 2008. I think they're too close to Wall Street. Um, Others would say things like, I just hate politicians generally because they always promise things and they, they never deliver. And tr Trump's just not a politician. And, you know, on, on the small chance that he might do something differently, I'll vote for him. Like there were a million different reasons people voted for Trump. And what happened after 2000, after the election is it became mandatory just to say the only reason people voted for Trump was race. Um you know, or Russia or whatever it was. And we can't explore these other things. Now, to explore those other things doesn't mean that you're saying you like Trump or that you believe that he was being sincere with his voters or any of those things. But you had to have some, some recognition of what was going on in the minds of voters. And they just stopped doing it. They stopped doing journalism. You know, they, they, they started doing propaganda, which is, you know, he's bad because of this. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. And you know, I, I just disagree with that approach. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's. Unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. 
I don't know that anybody who's ever read your stuff would confuse you with somebody who's supportive of Trump. Um, that would that would be inaccurate. But in your book, you take on the Russian accusations uh, and, and you take them on pretty much straight on. So explain, you know, I don't want to tee you up and take you in the wrong direction. Explain that in the best way you can of like what it was, what was real and probably what was I think a lot of people probably looked at you and say, well, why would you write this chapter? if if you don't like him because those are the right. rules right 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 yeah oh it's and that's unfortunate because you know it, it's that's again that's kind of a style of modern media which is a sort of inability to separate uh, sort of principles or issues from the people involved right but uh yeah when when the russia story first broke i i lived in russia for 10 years so i i was you know very interested in the subject um, but I, you know, it, like any reporter does, I kind of had a, a little bit of a spider sense that there was something amiss with this story that almost all of the sources were anonymous. They were telling us things that we kind of had to take on faith that were unconfirmable that were coming from the intelligence services. Um, you know, they were using a technique that I had seen in the financial services industry. Like, um, you know, I covered a lot of instances of, uh, you know, short sellers want to knock down a stock. So they'll they'll commission a study that says that a company is corrupt. They'll hand it to the FBI, leak the news to the to a paper, and then the paper will say the company's under investigation, the stock goes down, everybody wins, right? The Steele dossier was very much the same kind of story because what happened with that, if you actually if you were actually reading those stories early on. What you saw is mostly what reporters were reporting was that so-and-so took possession of this report, the Steele dossier, um, and the government was investigating it, but they weren't investigating whether or not the charges in them were true. They were just talking about the fact that there was an investigation. And so I was frustrated from the start that there was no effort to try to prove a lot of these assertions that were going on, um, you know, the, the that Putin had cultivated Trump for five years, that he had been, you know, engaged in a, a thing with prostitutes in a, in a hotel. Like there was a lot of sort of uh, uh, reporting by inference that went on. And then obviously once the Mueller investigation ran its course, we found out that there just wasn't a whole lot there that they could really sink their teeth into. And they had promised us that this was going to be the end of his presidency. And that in itself is a major media failure, you know? So I saw a lot of similarities in this with, to the WMD episode, which I also lived through as a reporter, where, again, anonymous sources, intelligence sources, unconfirmable stuff, um, stories that fall apart, uh, you know, because we can't get at the root of them. You know, we, we can't see the root, the root issues. And, um, and yeah, it, like, and add to that there was an advocacy part of this that a lot of reporters wanted this to be true because they hated trump and um yeah it was problematic from a number of angles for me what i really love too is that you brought up the facebook part of it and, and before i go to that because i want to have you share those stats because it was hilarious when you laid it out in the book because i also understand because i've always argued for years like when somebody in sports would be like oh two million people watch my facebook show and i'm like did they did right. really two million people stop what they were doing to watch your Facebook show? <laughs> that seems that seems to be, and so I want to get you uh, ready for those numbers. But 
there's also something as I was reading the book and on that topic alone, like if you ask just the random guy, you know, depending on where they were aligned politically, you know, hey, what do you think about Trump and Russia? If they don't like Trump, they probably say something like, well, you know, look, something's going on. Right. right. Like something, a right. very vague answer that kind of confirms your own doubt about it. Like, ah, was, something was going on because it happens to me all the time in sports. And I can tell within two seconds if the guy is really locked into sports or if he isn't, because if, you know, say LeBron were to lose a big playoff game and, you know, I go, I go to the gym or I pick up a sub and the guy's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Like, oh, I'll be like, oh, the LeBron, you know, he's no Jordan. And you're just like, OK, you, you know, you know, you know, he lost the game last night or whatever. So whatever it is, like nobody wants to feel left out. They always want to be a part of it. But there isn't a lot of digging. And the, the thing is, is like it's one thing if we on the outside don't do enough work on it. But when the people presenting it to us are doing it in a way that felt um, at times, even if you hated Trump, you're like, wait a minute, like this doesn't seem to add up. And the Facebook part of it was hilarious because I think the Facebook one was a very great example of like a clickbaity thing. Oh, Facebook, we don't like them anymore. And now Russia and they got people on Facebook and then. Um, you know, this is why Trump is even in office. Like all this stuff was connected. And then when you lay it all out, you're like, this is insanely wrong. Oh, what, yeah. were, what, what were the Facebook things like with the whole idea that they were manipulating everything? Well, first of all, you know, the the actual number of ads. So the, so the claim was uh, that Russia, through the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, which, by the way, they never established was actually a government operation and like and wasn't just some kind of clickbait farm for, for money. Um, they they proved or they you know, the Senate said that they spent forty six thousand dollars worth of advertising that was designed to influence the vote in a handful of states, um, you know, sort of against Hillary Clinton. Now, a portion of that money was actually spent after the election. But when you listen to the Senate testimony, they they put out these amazing numbers, like you know the that the these Facebook ads, and I don't know if you've seen them, they're they're preposterous, right? They're like pictures of Bernie Sanders, you know, as a bodybuilder with multicolored, uh, you know, sort of rainbow uh, gay rights things on, on him. I mean, it's it's there, there was there was another one that was actually um, something about. Uh, uh, Jesus being uh, uh, against masturbation, like uh, there, there was a picture of Jesus and it's like, we're, we're going to beat this together. It was the headline, <laughs> right? Like that was one of the ads that they bought anyway. Um, but uh, I miss but these. In, in the Senate testimony, they said that 126 million people could have seen these ads, right? And what they were doing is abstract, extrapolating some kind of number based on the possibility that people, you know, if if everybody who possibly encountered those ads over the course of their surfing had actually looked at those ads, that's how many people would have seen them. But I think when you actually dug down to the numbers, it was some insanely small fraction of that. I don't, I, I don't that's remember. That's what it was. No, yeah. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here. But when you looked at the actual math of like, there's a headline number and then the real math behind it. And you were like, that's such an insignificant number. Like, there's no way like, you, you guys are rounding up with the possibility of coming across an ad and then using that as this is how many ads were bought. And like it, the headline of it seems scary. The reality of it is insignificant. I mean, yeah, again, forty six thousand dollars on Facebook is like, 
I mean, that's like the old Leon Spinks story about having a dollar and 50 cents worth of cocaine. It's like, it's not there. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's so small as to not be visible compared to what, um, you know, the, the Trump campaign itself spent $50 million on Facebook ads, right? So that was significant. Like that, that actually had an impact on the race, you know, $46,000, even if let's just say that they were actually doing that, it's, it, it, it it's nothing. It's, it, it's not even theoretically uh, impactful on, on this whole thing, but you know, they, they sold it um, very dishonestly as, as something that was a major thing that happened because it was one of the only things that they could, they could actually point to that was concrete. Do people dislike you in the business? <laughs> uh, now, you know, I, I think, look, I have a lot of friends in the business and um, I've been working in journalism for 30 years and I, I get along with a lot of people. I think it's been more strained in the last five years, um, you know, it, beginning with this, with the Russia business and with some other things lately. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I tend to get along with the kind of people who, who do the harder core investigative journalism stuff because that's what I did for so long. Um, but the people who are manning the kind of the culture war type stories, um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not as popular as, as maybe I, I might have been one time. I want to maybe maybe close with this and I have something else I want to ask you about. But, you know, I have friends because being at ESPN almost 15 years, every time something would happen to ESPN, they'd, they'd call me or text me and be like, hey, what do you think or whatever? And look, I was in the building five days a week, if not more, you know, so I, I look at it as for that many years, I wasn't like just some guy that flew in to do hits for, for a couple of days and bounced out. Like, I think I had a pretty good understanding of how the place worked. And Skip Bayless would always come up. And everybody would always get pissed at him. I don't like Skip at all. It actually is personal. He fucked me a couple times. I don't like him. I didn't like him before. I think he has zero credibility. And he makes a ton of money and it worked out for him. Great. All right. But what I don't like is when people will say, I can't believe he did this. Or I can't believe he said this about LeBron. Or the person after LeBron wins or loses in a playoff game, they check his Twitter feed to see what his tweets are. Or want to watch him on TV. So what he's doing works. But the reason it works is really our fault. And when mm -hmm. I read the book, I felt like at the same time, as much as you wish it were different and there were this overhaul of coverage or people took things more seriously or people cared about it or people had the ability to say, I don't know every now and then, which seems to be impossible to do on television. You're just not going to have a job that the reason Skip Bayless is successful or any of these media members on Fox or CNN or whatever. And the people everybody get mad at like the reason it works is because of you, like you're the reason, like mm -hmm. it's your fault. It's not even the presenter's fault. It's the consumer's fault. And this is actually what we like. We like to be motivated emotionally to get some sort of response. So like credit for Skip because it's worked and he's made a ton of money. Um, but his success, you can't be mad at him because it's really your fault he has any audience. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I think you have to, you always have to think about what the audience's role is and, um, in causing or, or enabling a lot of these trends. Uh, there's no question that people became much more tribal uh, in the way that they consume the news in, in the last 10 years, but especially in the last five years. Uh, a lot of people just started consuming it as entertainment. Uh, it became addictive for some people. I mean, I'm sure you've run into, we've all run into people in our private lives who 
cannot stop talking about politics, right? Like you, you, you want them to, to be quiet and move on to someplace, uh, you know, a, a topic that's more congenial for everybody. They can't leave it alone, right? So those people are out there. They're the ones who are kind of fueling this, this boom in hyper-politicized, hyper-emotionalized political content. Um, and look, the reality for news companies is they can't afford to do business any other way because it wouldn't make the money, right? Or I, I think they think that way. I think what we're finding out now with companies like Substack and you know some of the other kind of alternative media spaces that there's actually a tremendous appetite for a different way of doing things. Um, but a lot of people who, who are in kind of traditional corporate media, they think this is the only way that they can earn. So they're not they're not going to go and do 20 minute investigative pieces about central banking or something like that. They're not going to get the audience for that. So I, I do understand it. Um, and yeah, it's the audience's fault because they, they go, they go for the lowest common denominator stuff. Um, and it's a conundrum, right? Because you have to pay for journalism somehow. Uh, and if, and if people aren't buying it, you know, we can't sell it to you. So it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's a thing that we have to look at kind of holistically as being the, the fault of everybody in the chain. Okay. Let's do some stuff. This is where I always like looking at guys' resumes and you'll be like, are you a hundred? Like, how do you, how do you have all these life experiences? Um, so, all right. What did you go to conquer Carlisle? No, Concord Academy. Concord uh, Academy. Okay, I know, right. I know. It's embarrassing, but where, where, where are you from? I'm from Martha's Vineyard. So, oh, okay. You, well, don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, <laughs> the vineyard's cool. No, it's just um, it, it, there's always a reaction that I get, and I always know what it is, even if if the person doesn't say it out loud. Um, I, 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 lived, I worked on Cuddy Hunk for a couple of summers, believe it or not. Well, everybody thinks the vineyard is Cuddy Hunk in a way, and you're like, <laughs> no, it's like six towns. There's fourteen thousand people year round. You know, I mean, look, I'm not telling you it's this this buzzing metropolis, but Cuddy Hunk is like Antarctica and New England, as far yeah, as I'm exactly. concerned. Right? Exactly. I mean, there's like six kids in the entire school. It's a completely, so that's, that's not surprising. You go to Russia, you do that. All right. So you go to NYU, you bounce. Did you go there to play sports? No, or no. It's all in media. Okay. And you didn't, what, did you not like the city? And that's why you ended up at Bard? Yeah, I, I was not ready to go to school in the big city. It turned out my high school had been a, a really small place and I was more comfortable doing that. So I transferred to Bard, which was more like where I went to high school. Uh, okay. So then as I was researching more stuff, I didn't know this. You ended up, I know you played baseball. Where'd you play baseball for a little while? Uh, in Russia, I played for uh, CSKA, which is the, the Red Army team. Um, and I also played for a team called Spartak. Uh, you know, they had this little, little sort of semi-pro uh, league when I was there in 96 and 97. So I played for both of those teams. Um, and I also played, believe it or not, in Uzbekistan. Yeah, that's uh, the I, one that surprised me. Yeah, I lived in Uzbekistan in 1991. Um, and I was walking past, uh, I think, one of the universities at one point, and I saw a bunch of people playing baseball. And I was so freaked out. I'm like, who plays baseball in Uzbekistan? It turned out that they the school was full of Cuban students because of the Soviet Union. Like there was that relationship. And the Cubans were playing baseball and they were they were awesome. Like I, you know, they they were fielding like you know it was just beautiful to watch anyway i ended up on that team um and we played kind of like exhibition it was like the uzbek national baseball team believe it or not and we played exhibitions against countries like 
Kyrgyzstan and stuff like that. So I was the only, I was the only guy on team. There was like one other Russian, everybody else was Cuban and it was me, uh, you know, on that team. Okay. But then you end up in Mongolia and you play basketball and you're actually like a professional basketball player in Mongolia. So yeah. give me, give me a level of what we're at here. Um, what year, what the hell was that? like? <laughs> so this was, uh, this was 1996. I was playing, I was, uh, working for a paper called the Moscow times in Moscow. And I, I was playing street basketball, uh, at Moscow State University, I, I met a Mongolian kid. Uh, we were playing ball, and he said, "You know, there's a pro league in Mongolia, the the MBA, the Mongolian Basketball Association." And he said it had the same rules as the NBA, 24 second clock, everything. Um, and I I was just like enthralled. I quit my job the next day. I went into the to my boss, and I got a bag, got on the Trans Siberian Railroad, and went to Mongolia. Um, found the team, got a, tr- a tryout. And my plan was to write a book about it. Um, I did play for most of a season uh, for for this uh, this team called the the Ulaanbaatar Mountain Eagles, and um, I was known as the Mongolian Rodman. Believe it or not, wait, and, is that what they called you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I I used to when I had hair, I, I dyed it and had like the the I had like a red red hair and a blonde goatee for a while, stuff like that. I used to get in fights and. Um, and I was leading league and rebounding, believe it or not, one, at one point. So, um, how good but, was the league? Like part of me, this is, this was probably a dream of mine in the, th- like in the thirties where you're like, could you find right. the worst professional league in the world and go play and get shorts Close. and stuff? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, w- I would say it was, um, maybe division two level, right? Maybe so you're a pretty high- good player then is what you're oh, telling yeah, us. Yeah, it was okay. I played, I played it for, I played for. Bard College, which is right. not a not a. But you played in great, college. There's a difference, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I could play a little bit. I mean, I was I wasn't I wasn't terribly good, but I, I could you know at least hold my own with these guys. We had we had um, a couple of players in the league who I would say were like good. You know, there was one guy who I think played um, who, who who was seven feet tall, and he ended up playing somewhere in Europe. I think maybe even against the Globetrotters at one point or with the Globetrotters. Um, and we had another kid who I think would have been a pretty good division one player. Uh, he was on, who actually on our team, but the rest of everybody else, we, we were just kind of, you know, putzers basically. It was, What's, but it was fun, you know? Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, this is an incredible life experience to be able to even say you did this is impressive. What's the best story from it? Is there a, a moment where you were scared, uh, you know, maybe a, a place in the road that you went to for 24 hours and it's never been the same. What's, what's the best story that you tell your buddies from that year? Okay. Well, there were a bunch of things. Number, number one, we're, um, my teammates and I were walking down the street one day and, and we looked across the street and I saw like the biggest person I've ever seen in my entire life. And he was the, this wrestler. Mongolians are like amazing wrestlers. It's, they had the, this culture, they're completely obsessed with it actually, but they were obsessed with basketball by the time I got there as well for different reasons. But this, it was a wrestler, this guy named Orgil bold. Um, and he was like seven two, maybe 350 pounds, just like a massive person. Right. And I said, why is that guy not in the league? You know? And they said, well, you know, he's a wrestler. He doesn't know how to play basketball. I'm like, who cares? Like, you know, just put him under the basket and have him hold his hands up and, you know, we'll, it'll, we'll, 
never be scored on, you know, is that that was sort of my idea. So we we I convinced this guy, me, this was my fault. I, I went up to him and I convinced him to come in for to try to work out. And um it, it was it was a disaster. Like this guy, we were throwing the ball off his nose, like he, he literally could not catch the ball. Um couldn't, you know, even if we put him on a stool, like he couldn't get it in the basket. It was it was unbelievable. It was whole, it was really funny though. Like I had these dreams in my head of like discovering the Asian shack. And, uh, it didn't, it didn't work out that way. Um, but yeah, there were, there were a lot, there were lots of funny scenes. Um, you know, I, 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 my, my owner, the owner of the, the, the team wanted to drum up interest in the sport. So he actually instructed me to get into fights, uh, with the opposition so that there would be stories in the newspaper. So I would do stuff like pull the shorts down of the guys I was covering. And like, you know, it, it was hilarious. It was, it was like the bad news bears or some bad sports movie. It was, it was really funny. Oh, somebody must've clocked you pretty good once. Cause I mean, that was, that had to be really annoying, especially considering you're an American too. Like who's oh, this yeah. fucking guy? Yeah, no, I, I, there, there were a couple that I didn't, I, I didn't end up, uh, you know, on the best end of, of, uh, of a little bit of a melee. Yeah. There, there, there were a few scenes like that, but mostly it wasn't good fun. Like the guy, the guys, um, uh, Mongolians have this, um, this kind of way about them where, uh, it's very, it's very normal for everybody to go out guys to go out. Everybody gets drunk on, on this stuff they call our, which is like a really kind of rot gut vodka. And it's like a rule that's, that, that friends must get, in some kind of serious fight by the end of the night. And then they forget about it by morning. So that, that was sort of part of the culture there is you, you, you end up beating each other up at some point. And, um, it, it was, it was a really fun time. I, I should, I should someday write a book about it probably, but it's something yeah. I want, I want to know more. Hey, yeah. that is, uh, Matt Taibbi again, for those that, that joined us for this, check it out. Hey, Inc. I love the book. Um, oh, because I just you. think that you're just trying to like, Hey, this is what's happening. And there's, there's no, leading the witness on the way in here man we're just we're just telling you what's up so uh and again check out useful idiots the podcast as well so thanks man excellent thanks so much ryan and take care this episode is brought to you by hotels.com when i went on my last holiday to cape town it was amazing my friends were there the weather was phenomenal and most importantly the food was fantastic but one thing i struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like Ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. I'd go to Wallace. I would go to Wallace. I'd say, Rashid, take me home, big fella. Take me home. Take me home, big fella. 106 to go. Wojciechowski for three. Not the shot. That's Rashid Wallace taking over late on both ends of the floor in a win for UNC over Duke. That's back at Cameron in 1995. 
Dick Vitale on the ESPN call. Okay, so let's go back to Philly. Rashid, everybody wants you. What's your favorite story of that time in the recruiting process and basically leading to the decision of you going to UNC? Oh, man, it's it's actually I got two. I could wrap up in one. So when um here I am, uh, I was blessed enough to be one of by a majority of colleges in the country, D1, 2, 3, NAIA, JUCO, all of that. Because at the time, SATs were 700. And my senior year, I didn't take the SAT up until like spring of that year. So, you know, I had, that's why I had all the schools. And so here I am. I'm watching um, North Carolina play Michigan. And, you know, the infamous Seaware timeout and all that stuff, right? So Carolina wins. Boom. I get up the next morning, I go to school, normal day, you know, class, practice, workouts, all of that. I come home and, you know, my mom and I, we were living in an apartment. So I just kept walking straight to my room. I had my headphones on. I kept walking straight to my room, but out of my peripheral, I seen, you know, some figures in the living room. So I stepped back and I gave a look back like, and who was it sitting there? It was my mom, Coach Smith and Coach Phil Ford, who I think is the greatest basketball player in Carolina history, but that's another story. Um, They're sitting in my living room. So I take my headphones off. I'm like, man, hello, Coach. What's up? You know this. And I'm like, what y'all doing here? Y'all should be saying, y'all just won a championship last night. Y'all should be celebrating or whatever. You know, he was like, no, we celebrated last night. Now it's back to business. That right there stuck my head. All right, I said, okay. Because, you know, I was used to that championship mentality with playing in high school at Simon Gratz, winning um, three city championships and two national championships. So I understood what he was saying. But I never had a coach outside of my coach, Bill Ellerby, tell me that. And, you know, that stuck with me. So, boom, all right. A couple weeks later, I'm taking my visit. So, boom, get down to Carolina. So one of my guys, he's my host, right? And so we get there. He's like, yeah. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to go to this party, you know, take you around campus, this and that. So I'm like, all right, bet. So we going here and there. So it comes party time. So I'm like, all right. He's like, yo, he said, um, where are you staying at? I said, you know, they got me in a little hotel right around the corner from campus. He's like, let me borrow your key for a second and uh, I'll be right back. I said, all right, cool. I, you know, I ain't thinking nothing of it. So I was in, I was in a um, room with one of his cousins, right? So, you know, we just chilling. And uh, we playing the game, me and him playing the game. I look up, three, four hours passed by. The, the party, well, for me, the party was over, but he had a party and all of this stuff, right? You know, did what he did in the room, went to the party on campus and everything. So I'm sitting in the room playing video games, right? So I'm like, dude, what happened? He like, oh, man, my bad. You know, just got caught up with some stuff. I was like, oh, so ever since then, but it was cool though. I still have fun that that whole um visit down there to Carolina. Wait, wait. So, so he I, didn't I always he, kill them. He, he he was the host is supposed to show you a good time to get you to want to go there. Imagine if the coaching staff knew what he had done. Like, did he? Did, <laughs> were, were you guys playing the same position or something? Did he not want you there? <laughs> no, no, we wasn't. But no, it was it was my man. It was funny. I was there for like about three days, so it was just that one day. But okay. it was still funny. So I always kill him to this day. I'm like, damn man, you know, you ain't trust me enough to come out with you. Left me in a room. So I always kill him to this day. But no, we still brothers. Was there ever a chance you were going somewhere else in the process? Um, maybe I, you I, thought you to were. To be honest, 
I, I gave real, real heavy consideration with going to Georgetown and Coach Thompson, uh, Coach Big John uh, Thompson, because growing up, Patrick Ewing was one of my favorite players to watch because he was so tall. And I was I didn't start out playing basketball. My my first love was track and field. But watching Pat Ewing, when I actually got into basketball, him being so tall and he coming with the hook and you know how he curled up for his jump shot. I'm like, man, this guy, man, he's just running the floor. So he was boom, became one of my favorite uh, players to watch. So then I started watching, okay, college basketball with my older brother in Georgetown and this and that. So I was heavily, heavily considering Georgetown. But the only thing is, my freshman year, I wouldn't have had no guard. You know, nobody knew that Allen Iverson was coming. You know, he was because he was playing football at the time and, you know, going through other things. But the great basketball player he was, you know, nobody got wind that he was going to go to Georgetown. So I was like, man, I got I need a guard because at the time, I think my skill set wasn't good enough for me to bring the ball up the court and, you know, do a lot of the things that you see a lot of the power forwards do today. So I said, I need a guard to be able to bring this ball up and give me this rock and, you know, vice versa. And at the time, Georgetown didn't have one. So looking at it, I'm like, Carolina is my best option because Derek Phelps, there it is. He's coming off of the NCAA championship. And I think the only, they were only missing two guys, two or three guys, but one of them was a significant player, um, was George Lynch. So, but everybody else on that team was coming back. Eric Montrose, Eric Bell, Brian Reeves, Donald Williams, they all were coming back. So I'm like, damn, you can't get no better than that. So along with, you know, Stackhouse too, right? And Stackhouse coming yep. in. With, so, yeah, he was my, he was my brother yeah. coming in with me in that freshman class, him and Jeff McGinnis. So that's, that's other, two other guards that I trusted. So I'm like, damn, it's a no brainer. And boom, ended up, going down there to Carolina and the rest was history with them. So it would have been because you were two years and who knows, I mean, if it's the same thing as Georgetown, your second year, Iverson would have been a freshman. Right. Right. Just like, just like my, if I would have stayed for my junior year, um, Vince Carter and Antoine Jameson would have been a freshman. Yeah. Cause that was and right. You imagine had, that five. You had the back to back drafts well not back-to-back drafts but you had the class gap there where mm-hmm. a couple years after you guys then those guys went top five yeah hey Rashid, a lot of respect really appreciate it and hopefully we'll catch up again all right oh no problem at all anytime man just send out the invite i'm here Ryan on the drive gets inside misses garnett nearly tips it in as does posing he falls down but gets the outlet pass you know how many loose balls James Posey has had tonight, how many difficult plays he's made. It's not going to show in the stats other than he is a winning type of play. That's Chef Van Gundy on the ABC call during the 2008 NBA Finals of the Celtics and the Lakers talking about all the things James Posey brings to a team that impacts winning. So let's talk with James. Before you became an NBA champion twice, you're coming out of Twinsburg, Ohio. You ended up playing for Skip Prosser at Xavier. Did you have any other offers, though, from bigger schools? Uh, you, you know, you get, you get letters from everybody for the most part if you're good. Um, so uh, when it came down to it, it was my grades. I, was a prop, I ended up being a Prop 48. So once, you know, teams realized, uh, those schools realized that, they, they fell off for the most part. So it was only uh, three schools. It was Xavier. It was Dayton and it was Indiana 
and Indiana, uh, only reason, like I took a visit there, uh, and that was because my high school coach, Coach Pacey and Bob Knight had a little, you know, uh, had a friendship. And so, you know, uh, I was able to take that visit up there to Indiana. And I was like, man, you know, Indiana, you know, Bob Knight, you know, at the time how he was, uh, I was like, man, I don't even know if I could play for Bob Knight. Um, <laughs> but those were my only options, um, you know, my, my senior year. And I took the visit to Dayton as well. Uh, Coach um, Purnell, he was there. Uh, Dayton, they were on the rise. And uh, being a black coach in Dayton, I was like, okay, that, that, would, that, would, be, that would be cool. And then Xavier, I took that uh, visit down to Xavier with my high school coach. And it was, um, you know, uh, they kept saying it was a, a, a small school and a big-time basketball program. And, you know, I went to – it was Xavier and um, Ohio youth uh, basketball game. And you have uh, Gary Trent, you know what I'm saying, uh, the Shaq of the Mac. Uh, yeah, the Shaq of the Mac, I think they used to they call him that. And I seen that game. And it was just something about being on that small campus at the time, uh, watching the style of play. And then also with Coach Prosser and Coach Battle just trusting me um, and thinking I, I could just help them change that, you know, that program uh, around. Um, and so knowing my situation, they told me that they, they wanted me to come there regardless of my grades. Um, they still wanted me there. And so uh, in doing so, I had my freshman year, I couldn't practice with the team. Only was around a team at study hall, and I had to maintain a 2.5 just to get my scholarship for my sophomore year. And so during that time, it was a lot of growing up on my end as far as being a young man, uh, dedicating myself to actually doing schoolwork and making sure I maintained or got my 2.5. And uh, basketball-wise, I had to you know work on my game uh, outside of the team. I played the, the intramural league uh, <laughs> with a. What was that like, James Posey, intramurals, Xavier? That must have been horrifying. Well, yeah, thanks to a good friend of mine. Now his name is uh, Chuck Crocker. We call him Chuck Chillout. Um, he drafted me. He played baseball at Xavier, and so he wanted me to play on their team. So I'm in the intramurals. I'm averaging like 45 points and stuff like that. We win, and I'm dunking, <laughs> shooting threes and everything. And, and so that was my season, and that was my approach to it. That was the only way I was able to get some, some burn, you know, up and down run and, and some type of competition. And like I said, I was destroying the competition. But for me, that was my season. And that's the only thing I could, you know, to lean on to help me get through that first year. Um, so, uh, like I said, being at Prop 48, just that one year was just like lessons. And, you know, I found out a little bit about myself more so on both ends, basketball-wise and academically. James, I really appreciate it. Again, you can check him out, the Pose cast, basketballnews.com, James Posey. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Anderson comes back to the hole. Watch O'Neal. Tips in Jermaine O'Neal. 18-year-old man-child. Jermaine O'Neal with a two-handed chip jam. And the Blazers take the lead. Jermaine O'Neal during his rookie season in the NBA coming right out of high school courtesy of KSTW. He was the 17th pick in 1996. Jermaine, I can't imagine all the options uh, that you had coming out of high school, but what's your best story out of that time? Was there any chance that you were going to go to college? Man, it's, um, I don't know if I had, had any funny things. I, m- I remember, um, yeah, I, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina, so the University of South Carolina was literally like 10 minutes, um, you know, from my house. And um, 
yeah, I remember going to the game and they had like this, um, uh, like this, um, like Stigman or uh, from the Wizard of Oz. What was the guy with the um, the Tin Man? Not Tin Man, but Scarecrow. The, uh, Scarecrow. Scarecrow. Okay. He's running around with a sign saying, "With Jermaine is no place like home," and it's like became a slogan. Right? They started putting it up on billboards, and we had bumper stickers. And it became crazy because um, obviously people don't realize myself, Ray Allen, Garnett were all playing basketball in South Carolina. Garnett left to go to Malden, Malden his senior year. And obviously Ray played throughout and then, and then went to uh, Connecticut. So they had this crazy pitch to create this like new like Fab Five. You know, they got B.J. Mackey um, and they had got they got another player. They were waiting on the three of us, but obviously the two left. And I was the last one. So they were all in with it. And it was just like this crazy hysteria. Um, but at the same time, Maryland has Joe Smith recruiting. And so at the time, Joe Smith was my favorite college player. So I'm on the phone with him. And I'm like, damn, like, it's Joe on the phone, right? I'm watching him just, just murder people in college. And so it made it crazy. And then you got Patino coming down, sitting in my living room. And it's like, like damn what am i what am i supposed to do right and it just it became so crazy um you know with the recruitment that you know it was like it was like a it was like overload you know and the nba was like okay well we know if he comes out you know and shout out to Aaron Tellum, who was my agent um in my entire career he did a great job on information Sonny Carroll as, as well was phenomenal for me as well on on uh, you know keeping me up to date with what was going on and i just so happened to come out in probably maybe the top 2 if not the best draft class in 96 and that was probably the funniest thing because when i did make a decision to go pro everybody hadn't declared yet so every week i'm like holy shit like will i still be in the top you know, 10 top 70. I mean, it, like every week it was like somebody coming out and I'm like, because back then people got to understand that when you made yourself eligible for the draft, you gave up your college eligibility. Yeah. Like it's over, right? I had to go find, I'm thinking like, okay, well, damn, this don't go right. And I'm going to go find me a job somewhere, you know, because this is, you know, this is kind of nature of what it is. But um, it was an intense time, man. And, um, you know, if I had a chance to do it all over again, I'd probably do the same thing, man, because I learned a lot and, and, and it really helped me as, as as the person I am today. How much did you talk to KG about him coming out the year prior? You know what? I didn't have one conversation with him. The person that I did talk to a lot, um, and it was interesting because Tim Thomas, um, myself, Kobe Bryant, the late, great Kobe Bryant, um, and a guy named Lester Earl and Ronnie Fields were like the five guys that were, you know, we we're having a lot of conversation about coming out and in particular, Tim Thomas and Kobe Bryant. Right. So we were really tight and we're talking about the process and we're like, man, what are you going to do? And it became more and more of a reality. The closer we got to it, uh, we all knew, you know, Kobe said the whole time he wasn't going to school. Right. So we knew he wasn't going to school. So it was more of me and Tim. By the way, can I jump in? Cause it's just so, funny how much better your information was like because these were your friends and the right. rest of us on the outside be like man kobe might go to duke kobe might do this or kg might do this and like even the idea like ray allen in south carolina like yeah he's probably going to uconn <laughs> um i can't imagine how much more honest you guys were with each other because you got a bunch of adults trying to get in your business the whole time listen and we're trying to we're trying to keep all options on the table but we know exactly you know and again for me i didn't necessarily know towards until like the end 
um, I was really shocked that Tim didn't go because Tim probably physically was probably the one that was ready the most physically, right? Six nine guy, two by two twenty, two thirty, did it all. He was almost too good for high school, to be completely honest. Um, and then Cole the whole time, you know, was saying, "Look, you know, I'm going pro, right?" And and he he did a they did a phenomenal job on, on, on keeping things quiet, but in those locker rooms and in those hotels, you know, he told us what he was doing. So there wasn't one school that you were like this close to going to? Kentucky. Kentucky. It would have been Kentucky. Um, I'm going to tell you that the ceiling deal was the last recruitment period. And Rick Patino came down. He sat in, he sat in my, my living room, me and my mom. And at the time, you know, as a single parent, like we, we, you know, we, don't, we don't have a lot of inf- real information um, outside of what's been given to us. So we don't know, right? We got to take in what everybody's telling us and got to hope that the, that the information is true. But there's no guarantee at the same time. So... I'm sitting in I'm sitting in the living room and Patino's sitting there and he said, Hey, he said, Jermaine, look, you know, we're gonna be good with you, but we're gonna be good without you. We'd love to have you, but I think you should go pro. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, because I ha- I had some challenges, you know, I had a little situation my senior year. Um, and he I, the thing that I really respected, and he was the one that really kind of, you know, put me over the top on deciding to go pro. He said, look, I have a ton of relationships in the NBA. You know, you for sure are going to be a first rounder. You for sure. I think he said you won't fall past 15, right? Um, and I'm going 17. And then once, you know, once we did, you know, got the information, um, everything else started coming in, you know, to those same numbers between 10 and 17 pick uh, in that draft, which was still pretty phenomenal because it was some, some, some killers out there uh, coming out of college. That's the same thing I hear from every guy that, that had dealings with Rick, played for Rick, or didn't, is that he would always be like, "All right, go pro." Like it's, it's crazy, it's crazy, and I think that's why I think that's why he actually got a. I mean, not only is he a great coach, um, but he would he would be pretty straight with a lot of guys because then the other guys would be like, "Oh, he didn't want Donovan Mitchell to leave." I'm like, dude, I got like 20 stories of other guys of Rick would saying, "Don't come back next year. You can't come back." Which, right. You know, if he were selfish, he'd be telling you guys, hey, you're probably not good enough, which I'm sure some other coaches definitely would do with guys. He's like, yeah, you're not ready. You're not ready. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, lottery, man. What do you mean I'm not ready? So um, anyway, he got it. Yeah, he got it. I mean, he, he, I think he really understood. And, and the thing that really um, I really respected that he did the work. Right. He was in the stands. You know, he was in, you know, in the community. He was. That he was doing the work. He, I think, he needed to see people's environment, right? He needs, he needed to understand. He needed to feel it, and I thought he did a phenomenal job uh, on that. And I was able to talk to, you know, Antoine and some other guys are at, at the school, um, and everybody said the same thing. It's like, look, you know, he's a tough, hard-nosed coach. He's gonna scream, he's gonna yell, but he's gonna be honest, and that's all. That's all, you know. When somebody tell you, look, we're gonna be good with you, with you, without you, you know. How, how much more honest can you get you know, in a situation like that in the recruiting process? You know what? He was right, too. <laughs> they wanted it. Right right. That's right. They won. <laughs> Jermaine, thanks a lot, man. All right. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com.
Amari Stoudemire, 6'10", 245. He's not sure where he's going next year. Could be Memphis, could be right to the NBA. Yeah. Says he's got a little Chris Webber, Kevin Garnett combination in his game. Oh, that's a beauty. That's a big one. Tens all around. Let's see, that's, is that a perfect 80? The first perfect score. Amari Stoudemire at the 2002 high school dunk contest, audio courtesy of ESPN. Amari, uh, you're another guy straight out of high school, but what was the process like? What's the best recruiting story you can remember before you decided to turn pro? What, what a lot of people don't know is that I was aiming on going to the NBA from high school since my freshman year. So I was, I used to, I used to write with a Sharpie, which I think was, I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> Like vandalizing nowadays, but I, was, I used to write with a sharpie on on the on the bleachers in school and in, in, in the stadiums, you know, straight out of high school, and I would sign my signature, and I would do that like in five different places. And I was just my freshman year in high school, um, and so my mindset was always like to you know to to go out of high school and be a force uh, throughout my career. And so when when it all happened and when I was focusing on my senior year decision, rather than going to high school or to college, um, I actually thought about going to college then. I was like, you know what? I like this campus. I like the college environment. I know a lot of the players that, that are going to be there. And so I verbally committed to Memphis, but I had my mind set on the NBA. So had you gone to college, though, you still would have gone to Memphis? It, it all depends on if DeJuan Wagner would have stayed, if Quintel Woods would have, you know, went to Memphis. And we had a nice, solid team to, to contend for a championship. Yes, I would have went to Memphis. What was it like then telling Coach Cal, like, hey, you know, I know I committed, but I'm not coming to Memphis? Yeah, I, I actually sat down with, with the coach. I sat down uh, uh, with, with Coach Calipari at the time. And I was like, you know, I'm not, I verbally committed to you guys, but I'm going to take my chance to the NBA. And I, I verbally committed to Memphis before the McDonald's game and before the, the Jordan Calvin Classic. I got the MVP of Jordan Capital Classic, uh, but my mind was set on, on, on the NBA. And once I felt very confident to make the announcement, that's when I spoke to Memphis and told them I was going to go to the NBA. What did Cal say? Cal said, I knew it the whole time, kid. <laughs> At guard for Georgia Tech, a 6'3 sophomore from Fort Washington, Maryland, number three, Jarrett Jack. That's Jared Jack getting announced for Georgia Tech at the 2004 national title game against UConn on CBS. Okay, so let's go back to your younger days, a bunch of different high schools. What was your process like that led to the decision ultimately landed you at Georgia Tech? Uh, to be honest, man, I, I started out at DeMatha. Um, so, you know, they have three teams there. They have freshman, JV, varsity. So they were number one team in the country uh, that year. And at DeMatha... No freshman plays varsity. I think it was maybe one in the history of the school, or maybe two. Um, so I was able to leapfrog over the freshman team. I played JV, played well, started, uh, had a strong season. And then coming back the following year, um, they thought I should play JV again. And I thought that was kind of stunting my growth to a degree. So I decided to transfer and uh, left there, um, came across a program in Mount Zion, uh, nationally ranked program, um, 
obviously that's attractive to a young kid when you're opening up the USA Today or you're reading the rankings and these high-profile schools and teams and they're playing all over the place. So I jumped at the opportunity. Um, stayed there for two years. Uh, the coach and the pastor who uh, kind of butted heads a little bit and the the team and, 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 and kind of dissipated. And that next year, you know, I kind of had a meeting with my mom and some other people that was kind of advising us. And I was like, look, I need to go somewhere that's really going to challenge me kind of on the academic side. Like I'm about to go to college. And that's how I found myself at uh, Worcester Academy, you know, and that was where I spent my last year. You know, some of the craziest winners I've, I've ever been a part of. But, you know, all in all, uh, the basketball program up there uh, with Coach Mo Cassara, and the whole staff, they they did a hell of a job, man, helping me with my transition going into my freshman year. Yeah, and for anybody that knows the scene and, you know, me being from Massachusetts, we know it's a factory. You know, there's there's a handful of the schools up in the Northeast, and you mentioned a couple of ones, the Mid-Atlantic and all that kind of stuff. But you're coming out 2000, 2001. You're the number nine point guard in the class. So what is the most memorable moment you have during that recruiting process? Probably the most memorable, man, it's kind of a kind of a you know not the best story it's kind of an eye-opening situation um so I, my last two schools I was trying to figure out I was trying to figure out if I was going to go to uh Georgia Tech obviously where I ended up going and then uh it's Michigan State so um the the day when uh so I think Darren Williams was about to go um so I was all set about to go on my visit to Michigan State and then I think Darren Williams was about to go visit Georgia Tech and my coach pulled me aside. He's like, yo, that kid is going to Georgia Tech today. And I'm like, okay, so what? He's like, yo, but what if he commits on the visit? He was like, they told you they like you the most, but what if that kid commits? Then, you know, whatever. So now I was sitting there, I'm like, I said, man, Georgia Tech is really where I want to go. I was just going to go to Michigan State, see the place, check it out. I was a big fan of Tom Izzo. Um, just to check it out, though. Like, I didn't, you know, didn't, didn't want to rush my decision, whatever. So I called them. Uh, I think it was like a Thursday, something like that, because I was supposed to leave the next day to go to fly to Michigan State. I called and committed, told Coach, called Coach Izzo, yo, thank you for everything, but I think I know where I'm going, da 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 da, da. Um, I want to say that next day, uh, 9-11 happened. And I think we all, if you're of a certain age, I think we all are aware of the effects of everybody knows where they were uh, when that took place. And for me, finding out that the plane that did the damage, it left out of Boston Logan Airport. That's the airport I was going to supposed to be flying out of going to Michigan State. So when I found that out, I'm thinking like, maybe not, I'm on the plane, obviously, but what if I was in line with the guys that did all this terrible, terrible stuff? What if we were in security line together or, you know, just weird. Like, what if I actually interacted with somebody that put this whole country or the world in, in, in this crazy, crazy thing that they thought to do for whatever reason? And that that part of it, that was like the probably the biggest part of my recruitment process that was like crazy. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess on top of everything else, if you hadn't committed to Georgia Tech, then maybe, you know, maybe a bunch of 
chain reaction things happen. Obviously not. Who knows, right? Right. right. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. It was weird. Weird when I, because at, at first, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't uh, as familiar with the names of airports at the time. So when yeah. they kept left out of Logan Airport, and I'm like, I don't know. I only knew the airport from, you know, D.C. or, or Maryland, where I'm from. So, you know, I wasn't familiar with it like that. So then when I found out it was, it left out of the, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, that was like a crazy, crazy, crazy moment for me. Robert Ory had three block shots in the first half. Watch Wallace go in. Ory blocks it by reaching back. Day gets the rebound. Ory's back again, slaps it away. Now watch him come up with the ball, takes it. Goes to the other end, brings it down. What's he do? Delivers the ball to Sprewell on the break. Robert Ory with a great effort. Robert Ory at Alabama showed a little bit of everything against Arkansas in the SEC tournament back in 1992, courtesy of JP Sports. So I want to go back to your high school career, Robert. You were the player of the year in Alabama. You go to Alabama. Give me your best story and all the stuff that went into that decision? I, I think for me, uh, I, I, the one memory that stands out the most is I used to be in ROTC because my dad was in the military. So I used to do ROTC. So one day I'm giving cadence. I'm out and they, they made me mad about something. I said, okay, you know what I'll do? I'm going to lay down in the shade and y'all going to get out there in the sun and march. And so I'm standing. I just happen to look over. I see this head full of white hair. I'm like, is that Bobby Kremers? And I like, and I look, I said, oh shit, that's Bobby Crimmins. So I jump up and I like, I'm <laughs> running the cage, right? But he didn't see me. And I think, cause I, 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 coming out of high school, I really, really wanted to go to Georgia Tech because you know how it is in Alabama. It's football first, football second, football third. I was like, I want to go somewhere where they care, all they care about is basketball. And so I was really wanting to go to Georgia Tech, but he started recruiting me too late. And I had already fell in love with Wimp Sanderson, the Alabama program. And the other crazy thing is we used to have the, this is going to sound crazy. We used to have the world championship of dominoes held in my town, Andalusia, Alabama. And I'm like, what? And so they went and Sonny Smith came to that tournament just to sit down and play dominoes. So they have a chance to talk to me. So I'm like, really dude, you guys don't even play dominoes. What are y'all doing here? But I, I think those two stories are the stories that stand out in my mind because, um, you know, recruiting was a little bit different back then. And um, the t- those were the three, my top three schools that I was thinking about outside of Wake Forest. And it hurt my heart when I signed with Alabama because, you know, growing up, you wanted to be, just to hear them say the rambling wreck of Georgia Tech, I wanted to say that so much, but hey, it turned out well. I went to Alabama. I had a great time, four years there. Um, and I- I'm very happy that I chose them because Wimp Sanderson made a, uh, him and Kevin Gray were huge inspiration guys in my life. And then they made me, they took a country boy and turned him to a country man. <laughs> was there anyone else that was like, you had a moment as a young kid, you're like, man, maybe I, I go to the big East or maybe I would go to India. You know, I'm just trying to think of all the guys that I talked to there. A lot of guys will have this like brief immature moment where they start daydreaming about a completely different experience. Oh, I, I thought about it when they had um, the, uh, what the three amigos at Georgia Tech? And I was, just, I said, man, I could be the fourth amigo. I could have been the four amigos. I, I, I used to think about that, but then I look over there at Keith Askins, you know, David Benoit, Spreewell, James Robinson. I'm like, man, we got a ton of pros up in here, man. All I'm gonna do is get better. And and also guys like Derek McKee used to come back and you know, and and play with us in the summertime to try to get us ready. And 
I was just very happy um, after you sit back and think about it, like, oh, this was a perfect choice for me because they, they actually helped me grow up and and they still have the love for me. You know, they even, they stayed on my butt about graduating, which I just did, you know, a couple months ago. So they stayed on me. Think about it. I'm 20 years removed from college. They were still on my butt about graduating. So I'm glad I went there. That's really cool. And I'm, I'm happy for you. So congrats on that story. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house on the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Our guy checking in. Love the show. 31 years old. Six foot even. 190 pounds. Can do 40 straight solid non-CrossFit push-ups. And run a mile and a half in 10 minutes. What's a CrossFit push-up? Like a fake one? No, those are CrossFit pull-ups or fake ones. How those ever developed... Yeah, how that was ever developed into a thing that counted for anything. I I don't... I didn't get... People really were like, man, did you see that guy? He did 100 pull-ups in a row. I'm like, which kind? Because there's a big difference. Or people look at box jumps and then they're like, dude, that guy has a 70-inch vert. You're like, nah, he doesn't. It's different. So wait, what's what's a what's a CrossFit pull up or push up then? I don't get it. I don't even know. I've never even heard of it. I'm not knocking CrossFit. Good for everybody that's in there. I think your pull ups are fucking lame. Have been from the get go. Uh, I got to tell you, a mile and a half in ten minutes. All right. I don't think that's. But you know what I like about this guy is that he said mile and a half in ten minutes. I don't think he was doing it to brag. I think he was just doing a baseline. So let let me uh, let's not be critical. He's just sharing it with us. Hey, what's up? 40 push-ups sounds pretty good. All right, let's get to the fucking email. Sorry. This email is about my longtime buddy, met him in high school, who has slash had Orlando Magic season tickets. Hey, Saruti, that's your squad. Nice. He's got himself in a bit of a situation. My buddy, let's call him George, not his real name. Thank you, emailer. Split season tickets with a coworker the past three years. Each year, he would just Venmo the guy for his share of the tickets. So the other guy had the tickets in his name. He would Venmo his share. George found out last month his coworker has now tragically passed away from cancer. This took a turn. Uh, George had no idea that the guy that he'd bought the tickets with was even sick. The coworker didn't share it with anyone. He left behind a grieving wife. The dilemma is, can George reach out about the tickets? Well, the first answer right away here is no. Uh, so let's let's keep going to the email. My initial reaction was just to go to the Orlando Magic call, explain the situation, but George has no paper trail, nothing with his name on it. He would just Venmo the coworker the money. After he explained that to me, I think George is out the 2000. No way to confront a widow about some NBA season tickets. I think you're answering your own question here, man. Um, George countered with, what if he reached out to the widow? This guy really likes the magic. Is this George Costanza? Who is this? (laughs) It sounds like a George Costanza. It does sound like a George Costanza, but if he's 31, Seinfeld, I don't know. I mean, you guys are younger, so maybe you watch the reruns, but... uh, 
Yeah, it does. Look, every now and then, some of these will have, like, I came across another one the other day that was like a Melrose Place plot, and I just figured it out. I was like, all right, even though it was a great email, I'm like, I'm not doing this. Um, George countered with, what if he reaches out to the widow, offers his condolences, and to pay for her late husband's share of the tickets? That way, she doesn't have to worry about selling them individually or getting a refund. I think you should just let this one go. Thoughts? Uh, Your instincts are right on this one. Um, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you reach out. I mean, look, is there a small, if we want to just look at every angle of this, is there a small, small percentage that if you reached out? I love that George was like, first, I'll say I'm sorry. Then I'll follow with, so about those magic tickets. Um, Chances are, let's go this way first. The bigger percentage play, she's going to think your friend is a horrible human being. Uh, losing two grand sucks. It sucks. Sometimes you just got to lose the two grand though. I wouldn't want to do it, but I also would like to think I have a decent enough of a heart and instincts to be like, you know, even it, whatever, I mean, losing two grand absolutely. Some of you guys are probably listening to this being like, dude, I'm not just gonna eat the two grand. I think you kind of have to eat the two grand now to the small percentage thing that I was just mentioning a minute ago. I mean, could there be some weird win in this where you give this some time? Or you offer up your condolences, then don't say anything about the tickets and then give it a few more months and then say, hey, look, um, I didn't want to bring this up at the time. And I don't know what you know about the season ticket thing, but if it's a burden to you and you you have to like sell those tickets because you've already bought them to the team, you know, is there any way that I can help? And then, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but then it's like, you can't be asking her for t- like, what if she says no, or she doesn't know anything about it. And then it's like, well, Hey, by the way, he owed me two grand because I paid for the tickets. I mean, that's, that's really, really tough to pull off. I mean, you could try to explain it to Orlando magic, but I just don't know that any institution at that level is going to go like, Hey, we'll take your word for it without any evidence whatsoever that you're connected to this other guy's season tickets. So, uh, this does not sound like an easy one. I would lean towards probably not saying anything. Um, and the magic aren't really that good. So that's a good point. Yeah. Maybe you, maybe you saved, was it only two grand for the season tickets? Did you have to kick in more a little bit later? So you could look at it that way. I lost two, but I saved four. So you're up to, you just made two grand. Do you think Venmo could help out? Probably not. Right. No, you can't like stop payment on a check. Like you can on a Venmo thing. I I don't think so. But remember when I did my, my app rant about how these tech companies invent stuff that can never help you when something goes wrong. I don't, have you ever dealt with Venmo customer service? No, I actually have. I Venmo the wrong person, like 200 bucks. Once. Whoa. So what happens Rudy? They, uh, so I reached out to the person who I sent the wrong money to and uh, they didn't get back to me, obviously. Yeah. So then I hit up Venmo and they were actually kind of, to, to give them credit, they were actually kind of cool about it and refunded my 200 bucks a couple weeks Hey, later. look at that. Interesting. Venmo worked out. Yeah. P- pretty stupid move by me, but yeah, worked out. So were you concise? Is or I guess there wasn't that much to to like tell. It, this would be a little bit more of a complicated story to tell. Like, other than I mean, there was I also a, the wrong person. Like, I, they clearly knew. Like I reached out to them right after I did it. Like th- there seems. How do they know that this two thousand dollars was for magic tickets? Like what would they know it's for? You know, they don't know exactly what. It's Maybe for, he wrote so magic I, tickets in the memo. Who knows? But even so, ah, it's just, ah, I don't know. It's tough. I don't know. I don't know if it's the same sort of. Uh, 
If he's been doing it for years, maybe there's like a year year to the date on the last four two thousand dollars, and he's like, "Listen, the guy isn't alive anymore. Like, what do you can we do anything about this? I mean, maybe not, but I mean, it's probably a lot easier than uh, talking to a widow. That's all I'm saying." Yeah, I have no problem with the emailer's friend who's actually not named George starting with the magic. I mean, I don't know, but this is just I, I don't I don't see. I mean, the fact that we're talking this through is actually making me feel guilty. So I don't, I'm not going to keep going with this one. The question I have for you guys, though, is that people Venmo people, the, like people Venmo money to the wrong people all the time, right? And is it pretty much just understood that if you're on the other side of it, like people are just telling everybody to go fuck themselves and not Venmoing the money back? That's, I seem to hear that all the time. It only happened to me once. Uh, and it was and a what the guy money. Shocker. Nothing. He, they didn't respond. That's why I had to reach out to Venmo. Um, but and it was an active know. account of this other person, or that they didn't yep. ever. It was like one letter off. I sent it. It was stupid. Um, and they, I, I think I gave it a couple of days. They didn't respond, and Venmo was like, "Sure, we'll just." I don't know. See, here's what I don't know, though. I don't know if Venmo took the money from their account, or Venmo just paid me two hundred dollars because they have some sort of like insurance thing. I don't know. Kyle, you get Venmo. You get Venmo five hundred bucks by the wrong guy. What do you do? Hmm. That's your answer. That's fine. You don't have to say anything else. That's enough. That was enough. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. We got one more. Let's do a wedding one. Guys have a hard time wedding. I mean, you could start an entire wedding help podcast. Uh, I will not host it, but there's, uh, there's a lot of people out there that need and honestly, I always think the wedding shit is really simple here. But um, all right. Anyone uh, as anyone who writes in big fan. OK, we've got a potentially awkward wedding moment. Love your thoughts on. A guy I work with is getting married in October. He's someone I'm fairly close with. He's getting married in another state, though. And so I'm only going to know four or five people invited. All right. So just right out of the jump here, <laughs> there are already there are already like little mental roadblocks that you've put up you put up two it's like yeah it's in another state a lot of weddings in other states man they've been doing it for a long time um and then he follows immediately with like i'm gonna know four or five people i can already tell you don't want to go to this all right no biggie here's the catch one of the people is someone who was pissed at me that's going to be at the wedding um me the person who's uh wait a minute wait a minute me the person whose wedding it is and her actually worked on a team together. Oh, okay. So it's you, the person getting married, and then this female. You all work together on a team together. And I had to let her go nine months ago. And we basically haven't spoken since. So you fired her. And now she's going to be at the wedding nine months ago. She's not the most mature person. What if she's telling everybody this asshole that fired me is way too mature? I don't want to see him at the wedding. Anyway, so uh, while nobody would take that news with a smile, she was probably less in the right space than most. When I was initially invited, she wasn't on the invite list, so I told my buddy I would go. Fast forward a couple months, still pre-official RSVP, and now she's invited. My buddy claims it'll be fine, but he's also clueless to these types of things. The way I see it, I've got a few options. Shoot the girl a text and check in on how she's feeling about things, letting her know that if it'll be weird for me to be there, I won't go. I've been told she won't ever initiate this conversation. Just make life easy for everyone and don't go. This isn't a wedding I've been waiting for for years. <laughs> Number three, presume what I presume to be Kyle's option, full send and go without checking ahead of time. 
<laughs> He's right. Um, He's fucking right. I feel like if I knew dozens of folks going, it'd be fine. But the small circle of people I actually know makes this potentially awkward. And I'm just trying to avoid making these things weird on someone's wedding day. Kyle, let's actually go with you first because he he offered up Kyle option three. And that's he didn't just name it the Kyle option. That's what you would do in this. In He's this absolutely case. right. I will say I've never fired anyone. So that does not surprise me. I don't. Every once in a while, you just say stuff that hurts. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you you're a young guy, Kyle. I, I don't think you'd be in charge of anything at any point. That's all. I, I was the treasurer for a fraternity that I almost joined. <laughs> Wait, Wait they were going to make you you were going to make you treasurer before you it was an up? expansion group of uh, actually it was a Latino fraternity. And it just I, for one reason or another, it just didn't it didn't work out. But I was the treasurer for the expansion group. I ended up actually we raised a bunch of money from throwing parties and then um I actually spent all the money on the summer that I went home and then spent the rest of the summer getting it back. But I, I, I returned with all the money, but I never had anyone under me. All right. Back up. Back up. <laughs> Kyle is so like, they were like, we don't care. Or did they find out you weren't Latino? And that's why it didn't work out. Like, no, I mean, me, they were like, are the- you sure? And I was like, yeah, I think so. Like, I think this is cooler than all the other fraternities that are currently around. And the idea of setting it up was fun. We basically got like a year of, um, you know, just basically acting like a fraternity before we actually got to like go do the thing. And then I kind of dropped out before we did the thing. But for a year there, it was like, or maybe it was a semester. It seemed like it was going to happen. But the the more that I was going in it, I was like, I don't know if this is for me. But you weren't even going to get hazed. They were just going to let you in and be in it charge of tough. all the money. It was, I didn't like it. No, it was it wasn't their money. It was like the money that the expansion group was like collecting by like throwing parties and stuff. I, I don't know. This this is confusing to me. So the, the fraternity was Latino. Like it all wasn't of its at, members. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And then there was they decided to throw an addition on here. Like I Exactly. Don't... All like a lot of my buddies were like New York Dominicans and Puerto Ricans in Potsdam, New York. And they had like ties to people at like Oswego and Penn State where all these where these this fraternity was. And they were like been trying to bring it for a while and they were like, We're finally doing it. And I was like, Well, I like you guys. And um, I don't know. I just kind of ran with it. And they were like, before we do this thing, we got to go by the book through the school. But you're an expansion group this semester. So, you know, we need you to do some community service. I guess that's part of being a fraternity. And also, like, we need you to come up with some money. So So they, like, drafted you into this, basically, into this new frat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were part of the inaugural draft class. Came up with, like, 1500 bucks, honestly. But then you spent the money that you well, raised. Well, you know, when you go back, sometimes you, you know, you miss the first paycheck for summer and then it's like, oh shit, I was already broke. So it's like you miss yeah. the first paycheck and it's a two week cycle. So it's like a month before you get paid. What am I supposed to do? And I got $1,500 in my, in a little bankroll. So it turns out you could spend $1,500 in a month pretty easily. <laughs> so I spent the rest of the summer getting it back. I'm just speechless. I don't. It's not because it's so unbelievable. It's just that it's another layer to you that that we're learning about. Um, I thought that would have been ha- cool on the resume, Latino fraternity member, almost. The thing is, Red you're treasure. like the least, the least surprising. Yeah, as Rudy adds in, sketchy treasurer, but a treasurer who made mistakes and figured out a way to get things right. Yeah, I atoned. I feel like this you is sure a did. movie waiting to be made. It does. I don't know. It might be a limited series. I don't know if yeah. it's a movie, but I don't know what season two is. Mm. This guy's got Which, wedding problems, though. 
Yeah. All right. So back to the wedding guy. Uh, he doesn't want to go to this wedding. So I think you reward yourself with a good excuse to not go. I mean, you could reach out to her ahead of time. I mean, I would, I would be more inclined to reach out to the person ahead of time, but it sounds like, like what's actually going to happen. Like think of all the times when you go, oh man, this person's there. I'm not going to want to see this person. And then you run into each other and everybody's fake for five minutes and then it's over. And then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's what I would do if I thought you wanted to go to the wedding, but just a bunch of the descriptions on this deal. I, I think it's fairly obvious. You don't even want to go. And now you have a decent enough excuse. And I think it's kind of a lame reason to not go to the wedding. And you have to think about like the guy that invited you. Does he really, really want you there? He must, you know, you guys work together or whatever. But, uh, these, these things, this anxiety, this pre-anxiety about all these interactions and stuff where it's like, oh, you know, how's this going to go? Although I may be weird because I sort of oddly get off on it. I'm like, oh, cool. This would be a little confrontation. It'd be interesting. See what happens here. What if I add this to the the equation, though? There's a good chance. He said he only knows a few people there. So there's a good chance that they're going to be at the same table, right? I mean, good question. But I would be a huge bummer. You'd have to think, though, that like. She's not going to be dumb enough to put them at the same table. Right. And then, yes. okay. so now you end up at a table. Maybe you don't know anyone. That's another reason you may not want to go. Or maybe you just decide, hey, I'm going to be somebody completely different. I'm going to tell everybody I'm a bounty hunter. And we met in, <laughs> we met in a Latino fraternity. <laughs> I knew that was break. coming up. <laughs> right. You know, I'd be like, how do, you, how do you know the groom? Well, you know, I don't share this with a lot of people. You just make up a whole character the entire night, play it out, try different lines, throw an accent in there. It'd be a huge adventure. You put a chapter, you can be a chapter in your book. I don't have experience with not wanting to go to weddings, so I really don't know how he feels. It seems like you do. So if he really doesn't want to go, I guess, would your buddy be heartbroken is the question. But I wanted to go to every wedding I've ever been invited to, and now it's been two that have been canceled. So, you know, I'm ready to go. But if he's, like, doesn't interested in a wedding, then I guess. I didn't go to Saruti's wedding, and I think that's still harsh. Yeah. But the thing is, I knew how little Saruti cared, and it was a really, really tough time for me to pull it off. And there's other people that have still kind of given me shit about it. But Saruti knows that I took care of him, so I don't think he cares at all. So that's why I'm o- I'm more okay with it. But I probably should have found a way to step up and go. I don't care. I was stressed out at my own wedding, so I don't. I don't. I know. I'm not a, I know I you know. didn't care. Other people were were disappointed in me, though, which is fine. I will <laughs> live with your right. disappointment. Yeah. All right, that's life advice. <laughs> Thanks to Mac Taibbi and all the guys at the recruiting stories. Uh, check out his work. Coming up next week, though, we have part two of the Muhammad Ali podcast here. We're going to finish up with Sugar Ray. He's going to talk a little bit more about his career. Did he actually think he beat Hagler, but then come in full circle? Do fighters talk to each other about their health? And then Bob Arum, who has all sorts of Muhammad Ali stories. So part two of the Ali podcast, that's next week. Thanks to Saruti. And of course, this close to being a Latino fraternity slash treasurer, except it didn't work out, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs>